The hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere and Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. Uh, the title of the hearing is Summit of the Americas, a Regional Strategy for Democratic Governance Against Corruption in the Hemisphere. We're going to have one non-governmental panel testifying today with the following witnesses, Mr. Eric Farnsworth, who's the Vice President of the Council of the Americas, and Mr. Eric Olson, who's the Deputy Director of Latin American Program at the Wilson Center, and I want to thank both of them for being here today. Both the ranking member, Senator Cardin, and I agree that this is, hearing, this is a hearing that's timely, and it comes at a critical moment uh, for the region. This week, the 8th Summit of the Americas will be held in Lima, Peru. The President was scheduled to attend. It's now been announced that because of events in Syria and the U.S. response, he will not be attending, but the Vice President will be attending in his stead. And his attendance uh, were at the highest levels of American government with the Vice President attending is, is an opportunity to demonstrate this administration's continued commitment to the region. The theme of the summit is anti-corruption in the hemisphere. And at the summit, it's my hope that the Vice President will build on this theme by promoting and showing the willingness of the United States to help our partners in the region build the capacity for good government practices. In addition, I also hope the Vice President will outline for our neighbors his commitment to actively partner with our regional allies on three important initiatives. Regional security partnerships to take on transnational criminal networks, ensuring the fair treatment of U.S. businesses and firms in the region, and promoting the United States as a partner of choice over external state actors like China and Russia who actively engage in unfair and predatory business practices in the region and around the world. But there is little doubt that the situation in Venezuela will and should be the dominant issue at this eighth summit of the Americas. Venezuela, under the regime of Nicolas Maduro, as well as his cadre of other corrupt officials, has systematically dismantled the institutions of democracy in Venezuela. He created a fraudulent constituent assembly made up of loyalists to supersede the legitimately elected National Assembly. Instead of providing food and medicine for his people, he has purchased Chinese-made anti-riot vehicles and equipment for the National Guard to use to suppress protesters. He has enabled and encouraged the rise of pro-government gangs known as colectivos to repress protests through murder and to intimidate voters on election days. He has weaponized food. Venezuelans are required to provide government-issued identifications to buy food or to receive government-issued food and medicine. Maduro uses these identifications to reward supporters with access to food and medicine and to punish and intimidate opponents and their families by denying them food and medicine. He has used corruption as a weapon by rewarding loyal senior military officers with lucrative corruption opportunities, putting them in charge of the National Oil Company and of the distribution of critical consumer goods, which they can then resell in the black market or take for themselves. He has used his neighbors in Colombia and increasingly Brazil as a relief valve by allowing over 50,000 Venezuelans a day to cross borders to buy food that is unavailable in Venezuela. And just like his mentors in the Castro regime, he, they've done this since 1959, he has used migration as a weapon. Since 2014, over two million Venezuelans, the vast majority of them opponents of the Maduro regime, have abandoned Venezuela. This well-orchestrated strategy to replace Venezuela's democracy with a dictatorship has all occurred under the guidance of his puppet masters in Havana. It is both ironic and lamentable that a summit, which is supposed to be a gathering of the democratic nations of the region, has invited the Cuban dictatorship, which has authored the Venezuelan tragedy and the Cuban one before it. 
and a country which harbors fugitives of American justice, including the killer of a New Jersey police officer and invites them to be a participant in all of this. However, it is promising that the summit's host country, Peru, has rescinded the invitation to Maduro to participate in this year's event. I encourage the Vice President to outline several initiatives to promote the restoration of democracy in Venezuela and to end the suffering of the Venezuelan people. The ranking member and I have worked on a couple of these already in a bill we hope we can get passed on humanitarian aid. The first is I urge him to announce that the United States is prepared to make an immediate and substantial contribution to a regional and international effort to provide food, medicine, and other humanitarian assistance to the people of Venezuela right now, so long as that aid is distributed by credible non-government organizations and not taken by the government to be used the way they're using food and medicine now. Second, it is my hope that the Vice President will announce that the United States is prepared to make a substantial contribution to a regional and international effort to help rebuild Venezuela once it has conducted free and fair elections for president, has abolished the illegitimate constituent assembly, and has restored the legitimate elected national assembly. And third, I hope the Vice President openly calls on the nations that are members of the Organization of American States to expel the undemocratic Maduro regime from the OAS, a collection of democracies. Venezuela and Cuba are not the only threats to democracy in the hemisphere. Corruption is as much a threat to democracy as any single government. And there is no nation state that contributes more to corruption in this region than the government of China. The Chinese government is using bribery as a way of gaining contracts in the region and as a way of gaining political leverage to force nations to support their agenda, such as cutting off relations with Taiwan and also as a way of creating an unfair playing field for American companies who seek to do work in the region. And I, I urge the Vice President to make it clear that this is unacceptable and that it will be a priority of this administration to aggressively confront the corrupt practices of the Chinese government and Chinese-controlled firms in our hemisphere. In addition, the summit also provides an opportunity to demonstrate that America intends to be not just a good neighbor, but a reliable ally and partner with our friends in this region. As evidence of this, I urge the Vice President to recommit our support for the Alliance for Prosperity with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, to recommit his support for our trade and security cooperation with our allies in Colombia, and to demonstrate the importance of our vital regional partners in Brazil, a nation that has much to offer as a regional power and to the world by announcing the permanent suspension of tariffs on Brazilian steel and aluminum. Since January of 2017, I believe this administration has made the Western Hemisphere a priority. Vice President Pence has already traveled to the region last year. He will return now for the summit. Earlier this year, both the previous Secretary of State and the Ambassador to the United Nations traveled to the region. As has been documented, the President made adjustments to our policy towards Cuba, and this President has demonstrated a firm and steadfast commitment to democracy in Venezuela through a series of sanctions against the Maduro regime that have been calculated, well-targeted, and measured, and that have been done in conjunction with our allies in the region, and, and what I have th think is an unprecedented regional response. Uh, we haven't seen this in decades in our part of the world. And I think this visit by the Vice President to the summit also shows our strong commitment to the region. This weekend, the Trump administration has an opportunity to demonstrate that its decision to make 2018 the year of the Western Hemisphere are not just words, but rather words that are backed up with real actions. This is what I hope they will do, and this is what I believe they will do. And now I, I turn it over to the ranking member, Senator Cardin.
Well, Chairman Rubio, first of all, thank you for not just convening this hearing, but your leadership on these issues. Um, our, our subject is a, a regional strategy for democratic governance over corruption in the hemisphere uh, from the summit of the Americas, and you've been one of the champions in the United States Senate on good governance and fighting corruption, particularly in, in our own hemisphere. So I, I thank you for your leadership, and I thank you for convening this hearing. Uh, you noted that President Trump has decided not to attend the summit due to the circumstances in Syria, and that's certainly understandable, but it's certainly disappointing. Uh, clearly, uh, you and I talked about this, that the circumstances in Syria requires U.S. leadership and response. And yes, I think most will be focused on what type of military action is taken, and I certainly hope the President is in consultation with our allies and that he recognizes that we, the response needs to be uh, judged by uh, and, and, and measured so that we don't get engaged with U.S. troops into a civil war in Syria itself. We already have military operations in regards to ISIS, and we have to be very careful as to how we conduct that. But you and I are also in agreement uh, that legislation that we authored on Syria accountability, which is passed through this committee, uh, is on the floor of the United States Senate, that you need to have a coordinated strategy, including holding Mr. Assad responsible for his war crimes. And it's way past time uh, to get that started. And the most recent use of chemical weapons, I think, underscore the importance for us to uh, initiate uh, war crimes against President Assad. I would also suggest that we work together on legislation that passed this committee a year ago uh, that's been enacted into law that provides the president with additional sanctions that he can impose not just against Russia, but Iran. Russia facilitates the, the Assad regime, and uh, the proxy of the Iranian military is carrying out a lot of these campaigns. So it'd be appropriate for the international community to say that we're not going to let President Assad have that type of support without consequences. So I thank you for your leadership on so many different issues. The Summit of the Americas does present us a unique opportunity uh, to advance um, good governance here in our uh, hemisphere. And I thought it was, was interesting, as you pointed out, that the Peruvian leadership decided not to invite the president of Venezuela. Uh, that, to me, was a clear signal about uh, the issues in, in Venezuela. So I, I, I noted that. But democratic governance uh, is critically important uh, in our hemisphere. We brag that our hemisphere has more democratic countries. The ratios are much higher here than there are any than the, than, um, uh, than around the world. Uh, so we are proud of democratic institutions. It's embodied in the democratic charter of the OAS, uh, and it is a fundamental principle. But corruption will erode democracy. Make no mistake about it. It fuels conflict and poverty and it causes the erosion of rule of law and democratic institutions. And I think it's probably our greatest threat in this hemisphere is the rise of corruption. I think it's more challenging today, Mr. Chairman, I, I need to admit, because U.S. leadership is critically important. But you look at the respect for U.S. leadership today uh, on this issue, and it raises major questions. Uh, President Trump's approval rate in our hemisphere uh, is 16% among our other countries. That, there's many reasons for that. I'm sure his immigration policies are certainly adding to that low number. But it's also the fact that 
when you look at the president, the way that he handled his own personal conflicts, and we're trying to deal with anti-corruption legislation, uh, you, you look at the, the manner in which he criticizes our independent judiciary, you look at what he's done on freedom of the media and criticizing the press, all of that are signs of concerns that we have in other countries where the U.S. leadership is going to be challenged because of what's happening here in our own country. I am pleased that Congress has taken action. Uh, we restored the State Department budget, which was a good thing for us to do so that we can continue to be major players in our own hemisphere in dealing with anti-corruption initiatives and good governance initiatives. Uh, I would suggest that the budget at 100% funding is still inadequate. We need to go beyond that. And I hope that this committee will have impact on the appropriators uh, to make sure that there's adequate uh, uh, funding. The global Magnitsky law was a, a major accomplishment on fighting corruption, and I was pleased to see that the administration has used that, law, uh, that tool. They used it against the, uh, the president uh, of Nicaragua's Supreme Elector Electoral Council, Roberto Rives. I think that was appropriate use of a tool to make it clear that there will be penalties for those who participate uh, in corruption. We have challenges. There's no question about that. The, pre the president of Peru was forced to resign recently because of corruption. Venezuela, Mr. Chairman, you're right on target there. Uh, if you're going to pick the, the one area that I hope there's a, the, the prime focus of this, of this summit, I would agree with you. It needs to be Venezuela. Uh, the, the summit presents us an opportunity. I support your uh, statements in regards to U.S. participation in humanitarian uh, relief. Uh, desperately needed. I support uh, your call for free, fair, and open elections to restore Venezuela to democracy and call upon the OS, OAS to invoke the charter because Venezuela is not a democratic state today. So uh, I'm in total agreement with your strategies in regards to uh, the summit uh, for focusing on, on Venezuela. There are certainly other problems. Uh, Central America has been plagued by corruption. Uh, I visited uh, Central America uh, three years ago and saw firsthand uh, the, the, the challenges uh, of, of that region. Uh, clearly, Honduras needs attention. The, the flawed presidential elections we've commented about, the tragic death of Berta Caceres has still not been resolved. Uh, we know there's some progress being made, but clearly the government has not given that the, the proper, proper attention. Uh, the legislature recently passed legislation protecting itself against investigations that should have no place in our hemisphere. And the resignation of the OAS chief of anti-corruption official is certainly another matter for us to be concerned about. Uh, I, I want to mention El Salvador just because I, I, I've been to El Salvador. I, I know the gang activities there. It's a real challenge for a democratic government to be able to deal with the network of gangs that control so much of the economy of, of that country. I really do believe that the administration's decision on TPS is going to make that even more challenging. Uh, I would be, and I'm going to question the witnesses as to whether the circumstances in El Salvador have significantly improved enough that those that are here on TPS status, it would be safe for them to return to their community. My observations is that no, it has not changed. But there's a second factor here that I would welcome the, the views of our witnesses, and that is the return, the potential return of those that are protected under TPS status 
What impact does that have on El Salvador? And whether that could cause further destabilization of the government's efforts uh, to deal with uh, good governance in, in that country. Uh, bottom line, this is an important hearing. There is much going on in our hemisphere. We are proud of our democratic uh, states, but we know that we have significant challenges on the growth of corruption. What can the, we do, what can the Congress do, the Senate do, in order to help uh, deal with these issues? I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. All right, thank you. And uh, so, Mr. Olson, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> All right, good morning. Thank you, uh, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin and members of the committee. I'm glad to be here today and uh, talk about this very important issue on behalf of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Given our limited time, let me make a couple of main points. From my perspective, it's good news that the Summit of the Americas is proceeding despite uh, the decision of President Trump not to go. We're glad that Vice President Pence will be attending. And despite the resignation of Peru's President uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski last month on issues related to corruption, it, it, it's an import, it is important that the region continue to focus uh, and face up to the problems of corruption. And establishing common expectations across the region is one way to further that agenda. Nothing could be more urgent. Corruption kills, it drives migration, it undermines the rule of law, which in turn threatens human rights, creates insecurity, and erodes economic opportunity. In this context, criminal organizations take root and prosper, and the legitimacy of the state is called into question, leading to more authoritarian and illiberal democracies or governments. United States' interests are undermined in the process. According to the America's Barometer from uh, the, the Latin America Public Opinion Survey, uh, uh, support for democracy has decreased by almost nine percentage points between 2014 and 2016 in the region. Their survey also found, quote, that the average citizen is more likely to support extra-legal actions, coups, to remove elected leaders from office. It's a worrisome trend. As you all have said, said the, the situation in Venezuela is critical. The Chavez movement that once enjoyed broad, broad popular support has systematically eroded democratic institutions, closed down most independent press, politicized the judiciary and electoral institution, outlawed political parties, and harassed and jailed political opponents, and ultimately destroyed the National Assembly through a fraudulent, bogus election for a constituent assembly. In Central America, corruption has eroded public confidence in most institutions. In El Salvador, several former presidents have been under investigations for corruption, with one essentially fleeing the country and seeking asylum in Nicaragua. In Honduras, the government-appointed Police Purge Commission has dismissed nearly half of the police force for allegations of corruption and failure to meet minimum standards. And in Guatemala, there's an ongoing attempt to undermine the in independence of the Attorney General's office and pass new laws to guarantee congressional impunity for corruption. In fairness, the news isn't all bad. Brazil, especially its judicial institutions, has taken the lead in investigating high-level government corruption, most notably in the Odebrecht 
and the Lavajato cases. These cases have tentacles and have, have led to convictions in other countries, including the resignation of President Kuczynski. Chile, too, has implemented important reforms known as the Integrity Agenda, acting ethical, setting ethical standards for legislative and executive branches. Interestingly, Guatemala and Honduras are the only countries in the world to experiment with multilateral mechanisms decide, designed to accompany each country's chief prosecutors. In Guatemala, the United Nations mechanism known as the SIGSIG has carried out far-reaching investigations with the Attorney General leading to the downfall of a sitting president and vice president. Honduras has agreed to a similar mechanism with the Organization of American Estates, known as the MOXIE. Just in the last couple of months, the MOXIE and the country's Attorney General's office pressed serious charges against a former First Lady, several members of the Honduran legislature, and one of the alleged masterminds behind the murder of Berta Cáceres. But despite these successes, elites in both countries have struck back in various ways by passing laws that shield politicians from investigation or threaten the functioning of the CICIG, the MOXI, and attorneys general. Thankfully, the United States and both the Obama and Trump administration have continued strong bipartisan support for innovative mechanisms like the CICIG and MOXI. Maintaining the support is essential as long as the governments, and especially their congresses in, in both countries, continue full cooperation with CICIG and MOXI. Let me just say in, in, in conclusion a little bit about U.S. policy. Promoting rule of law, strengthening de democratic governance, and fighting corruption have been central to U.S. foreign policy for decades. Yet despite these good intentions and hundreds of millions of dollars spent on rule of law programming, there is little evidence that these efforts have succeeded. This is the conclusion of a far-reaching study entitled Frontier Justice, a New Approach for U.S. Rule of Law Assistance, conducted by two former State Department officials, Ambassador Donald Planty and Mr. Robert Perito. We plan to present the report publicly for the first time at the Wilson Center in May. But let me just summarize quickly some of their conclusions. There is no shared or consensus definition within the U.S. government about what rule of law is, how to promote it, and what should be done. There is no unified rule of law policy despite the importance attached to it in U.S. foreign policy. And this applies across the globe, not just in Latin America. There is no central or coordinated repository of expertise or knowledge about rule of law in the U.S. government. Uh, and there is no overall coordinator, somebody in charge of promoting or uh, policy of rule of law in the U.S. government. All this leads to divergent views, strategies, and programming that at times are contradictory in purpose and execution, leading to great confusion on the part of recipient countries and undermines U.S. objectives. I think, uh, in conclusion, since my time has expired, I would just make the following recommendations. The U.S. has an opportunity, and in particular the Congress, to promote reform and greater understanding of this issue in the U.S. government. Congress should consider a series of hearings that assess the extent 
to which rule of law promotion in U.S. foreign policy has exceeded or failed over the last 40 years. Conclusions from these hearings should form the basis of new legislation that would establish consensus around rule of law policy for U.S. government and suggest new ways to organize American foreign policy so it is consistently applied across the government. In short, the U.S. Congress should continue to fund programs to strengthen the independence of judiciaries, depoliticize attorney general's offices, and strengthen investigated capacities across the board. Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Farnsworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning uh, to you, Mr. Ranking Member. Members, uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify again before you on such an important and timely topic. Let me thank you up front for your leadership on the hemispheric agenda, but in particular, your meaningful and bipartisan leadership uh, on efforts to alleviate the growing humanitarian crisis in Venezuela and to help restore that nation to the democratic path. You continue to provide a real beacon to the Venezuelan people for a better future, and we acknowledge that and we thank you for it. This hearing could not come at a more important time in hemispheric relations, just days before the next summit of the Americas in Lima, Peru. The White House has just indicated that Vice President Pence will be representing the United States. Hopefully, the United States, Mexico, and Canada will soon be able to announce concrete progress toward completion of the ongoing NAFTA renegotiations. More broadly, the region will be looking for signals from the United States delegation as to the administration's regional priorities and perhaps to dispel certain misperceptions as well. With a number of critically important regional elections scheduled this year, including Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Paraguay, and others, as well as the election charade that Venezuela seems intent on conducting in May, this is a critical year in the Americas. The summit in Lima offers an important forum to reaffirm the democracy agenda and to position the United States as the preferred partner in regional affairs. But we have to have a meaningful, positive agenda of cooperation in order to do so. The summit itself is not without its difficulties. Just prior to hosting the summit, Peru's president resigned at the end of March over corruption allegations, ironic, of course, given the anti-corruption theme of this summit, and several other leaders plan to skip the meeting altogether, as we've discussed. Meanwhile, those leaders who do plan to attend will be hard-pressed, perhaps, to deliver more than anodyne results around the official agenda, which focuses on anti-corruption. Corruption as an issue has been condemned numerous times in regional fora, including at the very first Summit of the Americas in Miami in 1994. I was privileged to attend and participate in that, and every Summit of the Americas since. Still, corruption continues to spread to the point where a number of outsider, anti-establishment candidates from both the left and the right may be ushered into high political office this year by voters who are just sick and tired of corruption. The issues are real. They're significant. Certainly, more can be done and must be. The implementation of previous commitments is mixed at best. The Summit of the Americas was originally conceived to support new democracies emerging from the Cold War into a unipolar world where economic integration was a strategic matter and where collective efforts could be applied by consensus to addressing regional issues. The world has changed since those optimistic days, but the summits have remained a consensus-based forum. This means progress on the most pressing regional issues can be difficult in the summit context, the divergent political priorities of nations at the table makes consensus unlikely, if not impossible. To build momentum and relevance for future summit commitments, leaders should move from consensus, perhaps, to a pathfinder approach. Those nations that can make progress on various issues and choose to do so 
should not be prevented by others unwilling to take similar steps but unwilling to sign on to commitments in the summit context. Alternatively, the summit could move from a grouping of nations who meet together as an accident of geography to a grouping of nations who meet together because they seek to make progress on the issues. If nations are disruptive or rejectionist or govern undemocratically, their participation in summits should be suspended. Indeed, participation should be limited to governments that promote democratic practices as laid out in the Inter-American Democratic Charter signed on September 11, 2001, also in Lima, Peru. Venezuela is a case of point. We've already talked about that to some extent. The nation is in crisis. The government's misguided effort since 1999 to establish a new socialism for the 21st century has predictably wrecked the economy and destroyed democracy. Social indicators have deteriorated to the point where Venezuela's global peers are mostly desperate war-torn nations such as Syria and Yemen. This is not a self-contained crisis visited upon Venezuelans alone. Migration flows, drug trafficking, and cooperation with Russia to undermine regional democracies are also directly impacting Venezuela's neighbors. These are precisely the difficult issues that summits should seek to address. And so we urge leaders, and we join with uh, this subcommittee, to agree on further steps uh, they can take to restore the democratic path while laying the groundwork for economic recovery in Venezuela. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to begin with a couple of uh, quick questions and then turn it over to the ranking member. Just on the point of the prosecutions, you talk about Brazil, Peru, other places. Obviously, we would prefer there not be corruption, but the alternative to no prosecutions is impunity. In essence, there was a time not long ago, and there's, there are countries in the region like Venezuela and in other parts of the world where corruption is rampant. Everybody knows it. There's never any prosecutions or accountability. So in some ways, while we're not happy about prosecutions because there's evidence that there's corruption, there's some good news embedded in the fact that courts are now going after the most powerful people in these countries. They're, they're standing trial. They're being convicted. The system is working, and, and it, it, so it proves that institutions and laws are functioning, and, uh, and that's a good sign when you see that. So even though there's bad news that there's corruption and the instability that comes with it, the good news is that the processes and the institutions seem to be working and gaining momentum in, in at least certain parts of the region. Is, is that a fair way to assess it? Um, thank you, Senator. Yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's good news uh, that prosecutions are taking place. Look at corruption has been a problem in Latin America for decades, for a long time. It's not new. What's new is people holding high-ranking uh, authorities accountable. If you look at impunity rates, the rate at which people are prosecuted in countries like Mexico, it's well over 95%. Uh, so that means people are not being prosecuted, and what we need is that level of prosecution, independence of prosecutors to go after the high-level people. Now, I would just add one small thing. Where we've seen success, such in Guatemala, there's been a really strong pushback from the elite and, and the powerful and I would say probably corrupt in that country against these very institutions, against the Attorney General, against the Attorney General of Honduras. The Honduran Attorney General was attacked again last night publicly by people who say he's you know, not uh, doing a good job. He's trying to hold people accountable. And that, this is going to be a difficult long-term process, and we need to support those uh, prosecutors and judges 
or being independent and taking this on uh, in a very dangerous situation. Did you want to add anything, Mr. Trump? You don't have to. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the second question I want to ask you about is kind of this situation that's developing in Venezuela with this so-called election. It, my view, and I'm pretty confident that I'm correct about this, is that Maduro is trying to follow a pattern that we see Putin pull off in Russia and others in different parts of the world where you conduct this election, uh, you win it, you're pretty sure you're going to win it, and this somehow gives you this air of legitimacy, but he needs there to be enough turnout to do it. And part of it is he thinks it'll be a reset button that kind of resets everything and allows him to restart, you know, perhaps taking away U.S. sanctions and the like. And, and some of the regional sanctions. But the other part internally is it allows him to go to the elites that have doubts about him, and elites meaning the people who are still benefiting from him being in power, but who are starting to wonder if maybe one of them shouldn't be the person there uh, because maybe they can make this model a little less broken and show them that his political party is able to gin up, mobilize people to go out and vote, et cetera. He is willing to undertake this election, and I was almost begging for an opponent, wanted an opponent, because I believe he knows he can control the outcome. He, that he knows that through the distribution of food, he can reward people to vote for him and punish those that do not. Ultimately, their control of the electoral oversight body allows them to change results if they needed to in order to win and all that sort of thing. The counter argument from some in the opposition is that he could steal a close election, but for him to try to steal a blowout in which he loses would mean much harder and a lot of them are calling for activism. And, and I think one of the things Maduro's counting on is that the Venezuelan people like to vote. So what views do you have on that? How do they participate, not participate? Um, it's a tough issue for someone living in there. We view it, we can see it for what it is. It's a fraud. And it's why none of the international organisms will go in and supervise it. But what is your view on whether or not the, the opposition there or some elements of the opposition should participate or not in this election versus abstaining from it as a sign of, of how fraudulent and fake it is. Th thanks, Tokayo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Chairman, that is a really difficult question, and I think first I would suggest that those who choose to vote in Venezuela and exercise their franchise, I think we can't uh, criticize them for doing that, particularly if their vote uh, depends or, or their livelihood depends on voting, for example, their access to food, medicine, their job, as you've indicated. So I think that's exactly right. One of the things that this uh, government in Venezuela has done very, very well is to divide the opposition, has to set the opposition against each other, has to been to jail leading opposition figures, not allowing them to contest elections, uh, prosecuting others, uh, trying to really use the... Uh, the, the um, tools of the state in a very politicized way to undermine the opposition. This is a perfect example. It's no coincidence, I believe, that uh, the election date was changed to May 20th, Cuban Independence Day. I think that there is a real effort not only to get out the Chavista vote, uh, and there does there is a core group of supporters in Venezuela that will turn out and will support President Maduro no matter what. Um, the question is, uh, if a, uh, if a uh, plurality or a large number of others turn out to vote, can he claim legitimacy from the result? And I think from the international community perspective, I think by definition he can't. It's not a legitimate vote. Every, um, every indicator would be that this cannot be a free and fair election under existing circumstances for some of the reasons that you mentioned, and there are 
others as well. So whatever the individual decision of Venezuelans to vote, I think is probably appropriate based on their individual circumstances. But as we look at it from outside, no matter what happens, this is going to be a vote that's fraudulent, is not free and fair. And I think in advance, the Summit of the Americas leaders who are meeting this week can and probably should have something very direct to say about that. All right, Senator Cardin. Uh, again, thank you both for your, for your testimony. Uh, I've been involved in some of the preparations for summits within the OSCE and annual uh, ministerial meetings within the OSCE. And, and I know that without a lot of prep work before the meetings take place, you're not going to achieve the type of consensus that's required at these meetings. Can you just share with us whether you believe that prep work has been done for a meaningful result in regards to fighting corruption? I mean, there's, there have been a, a lot of meetings. There always are meetings, and I don't think that should be the measuring stick by which we judge this. In my opinion, uh, there's a lot more that could have been accomplished, but as, as my friend Eric has said, that sometimes these are consensus-based uh, meetings, and so it's difficult. There isn't consensus in the region. Obviously, in general, everybody's opposed to corruption, but how one goes about it. Is there a commitment to independent uh, uh, judiciaries and independent prosecutors? I would say the there's not. So that's uh, unlikely to come out of the summit? I don't think so. I think what we'll have, you know, I'm not saying they're going to be completely useless, but general kind of uh, statements uh, that, that say the right things, but... It really requires political will of independent countries to create independent judicial institutions. But it also requires leadership. Exactly. And America, U.S., has always been a dominant player in every regional organization that we belong to. Mr. Fonsworth, has the United States prepped this summit to a point where we can get a useful result? Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Ranking Member. It's difficult in some way to have meaningful preparations for meetings when you don't have uh, people in place, for example, at the State Department uh, or in other uh, government um, agencies. Uh, the people who are there are doing really important work, uh, meaningful work on behalf of the American people, but there is a reality in the context of um, government officials to be able to conduct those very important negotiations. I would say that the OAS, the IDB, two hemispheric institutions have run very professional uh, processes up to uh, the, the Lima summit. They have tried to uh, forge consensus on some very difficult issues, but you're exactly right. When you actually get to the table with the leaders themselves, and I've been a part of the Summit of the Americas process, again, going back to 1994, the most pre-cooked agreements at the end of the day may have little relevance to what the leaders themselves actually decide to do. And there's a second element of this as well. It's not just what they actually agree in the meeting, it's what they actually meaningfully implement coming out of the meetings. There is a review process that the OAS runs, the Summit Implementation Review Group. It's very well intentioned, but you have to have the leaders of the individual countries say, not only did I commit to doing that among my peers, but I'm also committed to doing that and implementing the agenda for the benefit of my people. And it may cost some politically, and I think that's always the complication. Mr. Olson, you raised a very good point about having a point person on rule of law. I thought we had that person. I thought that was Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. State Department should take the lead on this. 
That's the values of our country? Sure. I, I, I believe, you know, if you, uh, uh, that that leadership should come from the State Department, but it has to be someone at, a, at enough of a level, senior enough, that would also bring together the other agencies of government. The Department of Justice plays a role in this. Uh, other, other elements of the U.S. government, even within the State Department. Are you saying that that position, which is currently unfilled, but that position is not a high enough level? In my opinion, no, it is not. It doesn't have the ability to bring about discipline across multiple U.S. government agencies and even offices within the State Department to ensure that there's a consistent policy uh, implementation on rule of law. No, it, it's not enough. I, I would suggest that the model that has been the most successful to date has been the trafficking model that we've used, where we do have a point person in the State Department responsible for trafficking, has strong congressional support. That person does have uh, uh, influence in other agencies, and there are now standards that we judge with the Trafficking in Persons report. This committee has passed out legislation on corruption. It's pending on the floor of the, of the Senate <coughs> that would start a process similar to trafficking on judging every country in the world, including the United States, on its commitments to fight corruption, and those at the lowest tiers, there would be expectations in our bilateral relations that progress would be made or their clawbacks of funds uh, in regards to uh, USAID. Uh, but you are correct, that relies on international standards on judgment as to corruption rather than a self-determination uh, or a consensus determination among countries, which doesn't exist today. No. Uh, so, um, last point and then a quick response. Impunity in our hemisphere is, is off the charts. I mean, uh, we have countries that have made tremendous efforts to try to deal with impunity, and you point out they're still in the 90 percentile, which is unbelievable that, it, right. that we could have democracies that have right. impunity rates as high. The two independent commissions that you refer to, one in Honduras, the other in Guatemala, was a major achievement to get outside, the, to give up autonomy right. of a country. That's, that's a tough thing to do. Uh, and yet the progress which has been steady has been slow. Right. Uh, yes, and I, I, I think that overall the picture is very discouraging, but I will point out that with two successive strong attorneys general in Guatemala and the support of CC, the impunity rate in Guatemala is actually in the area of 60 to 70 percent, which may not sound great to us, but compared to 95 percent in Honduras or Mexico, it's a sign of real achievement. And that's what I mean about having a clear, integrated policy that focuses on things that actually work. And I think we have a model in Guatemala. Look at people are trying to erode that, undermine it, accuse them of all kinds of things. But it is being successful, and we can support those kinds of efforts, not in, only in Guatemala, but in Honduras and other places. Just one final point. Which model do you think is best of the two, Guatemala and uh, Honduras? Well, that's, <laughs> that's a, uh, is that a Solomonic question here. Well, they were uh, controversial uh, because of the ways that they were set uh, up originally. Yes, I, I, I think that they both have real potential. The, the advantage that the Guatemalan process has is that they can initiate their own uh, investigations. The UN uh, body can. Honduras cannot, and so it is a little less independent, 
But it has the advantage of ha working only with a special commission within the prosecutor's office. And in some ways, it's better because it's strengthening the prosecutor's office. Uh, I think that's happening in Guatemala, but I think, you know, Honduras, uh, you know, it's been around for just over two years, and it's really starting to take hold. And that's why people are reacting. The Congress is passing laws. Uh, people are attacking the Attorney General because they're beginning to be successful. And that's what we have to be vigilant about, that we continue to support those efforts. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. Mr. Olson, I, I wanted to better understand in your testimony, you talk about how there's no unified rule of law policy, and this sort of gets to what Senator Cardin was asking you about. Are you talking about that in the context of your discussion with Senator Cardin, that we don't have a high enough official um, making the case and that it's not integrated throughout the government, or is it that we have not carefully defined and integrated what rule of law policy should be with respect to other countries? Well, I think the latter point is really the central one. We don't have a clear and unified view of what rule of law promotion is across the U.S. government. I think in addition to having a unified view, it would be important that, the, that there would be a senior official driving that agenda. But the point is that if you go to the Justice Department, they may say it's one thing. You go to USAID, it may be another thing. Uh, you go to the State Department and INL, and it'll be another thing. So, you know, they're all fine and valid, but when you have different approaches to rule of law, the risks of contradiction, undermining yourself, uh, undermining U.S. government, really sets back this agenda, and it's it's global. I'm not just talking here right. about the Americas. Um, so, your suggestion that Congress really needs to take a, a long look at this and come up with new legislation is your view of one way to address that. Let me say it this way: I think this would be an ideal. Uh, venue for some real authorizing legislation to push this agenda in the U.S. government. Well, I'm sure the chair and ranking member um, are listening to that, and, and I certainly agree with that. I think that would be very important. I want to ask you, Mr. Farnsworth, because in your testimony, you point out that Russia is working, or that Venezuela is working with Russia to look at Venezuela as a beachhead in the Americas to do some of the things they've been doing across Europe and the United States, manipulating information um, and hacking, cyber hacking, all of the things that we've seen here. What do you think we should be doing to address that, and how widespread do you think that is throughout the Americas? Well, thank you for the question, and it's by definition difficult to get our arms around this, at least in an unclassified atmosphere, um, of which we clearly are. Um, but reports indicate that the uh, cooperation is growing. Uh, there are specific instances, for example, the Catalan independence referendum in Spain, where Russia was clearly identified as meddling, but much of the Spanish language traffic, uh, both uh, in terms of uh, news reports that were colored or um, uh, presented in a certain way, or even specific hacking, uh, out of the public eye was being uh, channeled through Venezuela. Um, some of this is speculation, uh, but there is a very clear indication of interest uh, within 
uh, Venezuela and also from coming out of Russia in terms of the elections in some of the countries that face elections this year in the region, particularly Colombia and Mexico uh, and perhaps others as well. And the reason why this is so critically important to the United States is because those are two of our very closest allies in the Western Hemisphere. They're strong democracies. The United States on a bipartisan basis has been a strong supporter. We've pushed a cooperation agenda on the security side, on the economic side, on the political side. And to have uh, people, as Eric Olson was commenting, publics beginning to question democracy as the best form of government is a real strate strategic setback for the United States in the Western Hemisphere. But even more to the point, to the extent people may be elected in those countries or others who are uh, taking an anti-U.S. viewpoint, taking a more skeptical view of cooperation with the United States, that it would be also a real setback for U.S. efforts in the Western Hemisphere, in my view. So at some level, my uh, belief is that Russia doesn't really care who's elected in mm. Colombia or Mexico or Brazil or Paraguay. What they care about is disruption. What they care about is complicating the U.S. effort in the Western Hemisphere. And if, through some of their efforts, they can lead to the election of somebody who's overtly anti-American, so much the better from their perspective. Venezuela has proven to be a very receptive and willing ally in this effort for several reasons, not the least of which is the government's virulent anti-American posture itself, but also because Venezuela's bankrupt. It desperately needs financial support from anybody who will get it uh, to give it to them, and to, that has come not just in terms of oil sales uh, to the United States, but also uh, support from China and support now from Russia as well. So this seems to be a growing problem. The targets of opportunity are very clear uh, this year in the Western Hemisphere and perhaps going forward. Uh, and it's something that even uh, the former Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson mentioned before he traveled to. Latin America in early February, he clearly said before he left for Mexico that uh, in the Mexican context, people should be taking a look uh, at what Russia might be doing. He didn't further identify that, but um, based on my experience as a former State Department and as administration officials from a number of years ago, secretaries of state generally don't say things like that unless there's a particular reason to do so. So how hard is it to address that kind of a challenge when we have a president here in the United States in the White House who has refused to acknowledge Russian interference in elections in the United States and, and really throughout the world? I may not be the best person to ask that very difficult question. Um, it is a relevant question. Uh, in the Latin America, Western Hemisphere context, uh, I think exposure of some of these activities so that people can actually have an understanding of what's going on and clearly uh, be able to resist that, I think, is the first step. That requires intelligence sharing. It requires cooperation at the government level. It also requires a free and independent press, which we don't have in Venezuela, uh, and other institutions of democracy that are so critical for the health of the, of the hemisphere. Well, I, I would suggest that it may even be harder than that, because as I travel around in my state of New Hampshire, um, I run into people on a regular basis who don't recognize or think that there is actual an attempt to interfere in the United States elections and in elections in other countries, and that despite, you know, our rule of law, our free press, our um, the other institutions that we have here. So um, I think this is an an effort that requires everyone in democracies, in the international community, in the free world to to 
point out the threat that is posed to all of us. And, and I hope that we're going to see some action in the United States and our own leadership to address this at some point. So I, I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I'm going to let Senator Kane's going to go, but I want just make sure I don't forget to get back to the point you just raised, because I think it's at the heart of what's happening in this region and all over the world. But Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to our witnesses. I, I want to ask questions about Honduras. Um, the last months have had a lot of very, very serious problems. Presidential elections in the fall that were marred by significant irregularities, significant enough that the OAS eventually weighed in and said that they thought that there needed to be a rerun of the elections. Um, the, the U.S. sort of accepted the electoral result anyway when the OAS thought that they, they were so compromised they, they needed a do-over. Um, in late January, the AP documented that the newly sworn in national director of the police and two top officials had all participated in moving almost a ton of cocaine uh, and then intervening in an arrest order to protect the shipment. And then in February, middle of February, the head of the Machi, the OAS sort of uh, created anti-corruption and impunity effort in Honduras, the head of uh, Machi resigned in the face of what he termed rising hostility from the Honduran government and carrying out its work. Let's talk about what should we be doing to promote the restart of Machi or some verified uh, anti-corruption effort uh, in Honduras. What advice would you have for us? Thank you, Senator Kane, and I, and I uh, want to just uh, thank you for your interest in Honduras. I was a missionary in Honduras for a couple of years as mm -hmm. well, and have spent over 30, uh, 30 years following and going back there regularly, focused on a lot of these issues, and I, you're right. I knew you were our Honduras <laughs> expert, but I didn't realize you had started as a missionary there. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I love the whole region, but yeah. uh, Honduras has a special place in my heart. Um, listen. Uh, yes, I think Honduras faces some really unique challenges right now, and it's, it's vitally important that the United States government weigh in, speak out loudly on all of these rule of law issues. The moxie is under attack. People are challenging its constitutionality on, on bogus terms. Congress is pay, pay, passing laws to protect itself. Uh, the attorney general is under assault. Uh, he, he texted me last night from, from uh, Trippies in Holland. He says people are challenging his ability to open up this special investigation unit that's held the first lady, former first lady accountable. So he's under attack by Congress. Everything is at play right now in Honduras around these issues. And so it's vitally, vitally important for the U.S. Congress, the U.S. administration to speak out, to say, this is not a partisan issue. This is not a left-right issue. This is about the rule of law, which is at the very core of our values and our principles as a government. And I think it's really important. We, sadly, right now, don't have an ambassador in Honduras. I'm, I, I, the people that are in our embassy are doing a terrific job. But there's, we need an ambassador at that level to be an outspoken advocate for these issues. Uh, do you, we, do, you, we, share, do huh? you share the, the view of the, uh, the guy who stepped down as a head of Machi that uh, it was, you know, government pressures even directly from the president? I mean, with the tone set from the president of Honduras that's getting in his way? 
Uh, I think it was a combination of both. And I know, uh, know Juan Jimenez uh, very well. We're still in touch. He's back in Lima now where he, 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 he lives. But I think it was pressure from the government, pressure from Congress, uh, in the Honduran Congress, but also a breakdown in confidence in, in his leadership uh, from Secretary General Amagro. And I've spoken directly with Secretary General Amagro about this. It's unfortunate, but it really has put the moxie in a weakened spot. Uh, they are looking at an, uh, you know, somebody to replace him with soon, I hope any minute now, frankly. But uh, this is sure a vital... I mean, I hope that may pay attention to hearing like this. It would sure send a good sign if the appointment of a replacement is somebody with real gravitas uh, uh, whose appointment would send the message that, yeah, this is not an effort that's going away. If anything, we're going to take it even more seriously now. Knowing how Hondurans view your role <laughs> and your uh, work, uh, that kind of message would be absolutely essential mm -hmm. from this entire committee, frankly. But uh, people need to speak out at these critical moments to say the U.S., is standing behind the rule of law, human rights, good governance. These are values in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. This is part of what we're for. And I think our, our, our embassy personnel could really use that kind of support right now. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. And I think there's this broader narrative that, that this sort of reveals um, when we talk about corruption and the decline of democracy. And if you just look at the world and sort of the five flashpoints, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, radical jihadists, the, the one thing they all have in common is authoritarianism. In some way, shape, or form, obviously China is an authoritarian society, Russia the same, North Korea is a bizarre place, uh, Iran is authoritarian, and, and Radical jihadism is either, obviously it's not a democratic process, but oftentimes it's even created by authoritarianism because the, you know, uh, repressive governments that do not allow people opportunities for upward mobility and the like create a ready population to seek membership in a group that makes them feel influential and powerful in society. So we still so much, analyze so much of foreign policy in the 21st century with the lens of the 20th century about the Cold War and the like where there was an ideological dispute between the United States and the spread of communism. It was authoritarian, but for the purpose of advancing communism, this is authoritarianism for the purpose of furthering something else, primarily control, the projection of strength and, and order. And so it, the Cold War ends in 89 through 91, and then everybody says that it's the end of history, right? And everyone's going to become a democracy. Markets are going to solve all of our economic problems. And we took that for granted for 15 or 20 years. And we just thought, if we open up to China economically, they're going to become more like us. And the same with Russia. Well, it didn't necessarily work out that way. And what we have seen as well is that these economic changes at the global stage disrupted people's lives tremendously. It displaced people economically. It moved, you know, you add to that automation and the like. And so what happens in these societies that feel a lack of order and a lack of, of stability and tremendous insecurity? You become vulnerable for the authoritarian figure that stands up and says, I'm going to restore order. I'm going to make things right again. I'm going to make us, you know, a more powerful country and the like. It's certainly critical to Putin's argument. And it explains Russian interference because as part of that authoritarian argument, they point to the U.S., the beacon of democracy, and say, look at these guys. They're at each other's throat. The elections are illegitimate. I'm convinced that that wasn't just the goal in 2016. I think it will be the goal from here on out 
to disrupt elections and create doubt about whether they're legitimate. I mean, imagine, I said this in the open hearing at the Intel Committee, imagine if you're able to go in, change people's voter registration, so when they go vote on election day, they tell them you're not registered to vote. You do that to enough people, using analytics to do it to one party disproportionately, and enough of that goes on in this environment, and you're going to have on election night people out there saying this was a fraudulent election. You undermine American democracy, you've undermined the, the liberal world order in terms of democracy. That explains a lot of what they're doing there and explains part of what's happening in this hemisphere as well. We have a lot of these countries with rampant corruption, rampant criminality. Life is so bad that people are willing then to take some of the most dangerous journeys imaginable to escape and try to come to the United States. And you've created the, the territory and the environment for strong men and women to stand up and say, I'm going to restore order with a firm hand. And so look how this region is divided. On one side, Bolivia, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Ecuador seems to be migrating away from that model somewhat, um, and that's good news. And then there's everybody else to varying degrees. So as much as every, anything else, what's happening in this Western Hemisphere is an extension of what's happening globally. And that is a debate between those of us who believe in the democratic order, even though sometimes it elects people we don't agree with, and leaders in other countries we don't agree with, and those who seek to spread their model of authoritarianism as the, an acceptable model for the 21st century. And it is, by the way, a reminder of why our leaders, and I mean including the president, to be very careful about complimenting authoritarian leaders, even though they happen to be our allies on a particular instance, because it demoralizes the, the democratic order. And I'm not here to tell you that every country in the world that Syria can become New Zealand overnight. I am here to say, though, that I think it is important for us to always uh, try to promote steps towards a democratic order because democratic countries have proven to be less likely to, for example, start wars unnecessarily, invade their neighbors unnecessarily, and the like. And so I guess my question is, isn't, isn't it, aren't what we're seeing in this hemisphere just part of a broader global trend in this sort of ongoing 21st century battle between authoritarianism on one side, the argument that authoritarianism is a valid and legitimate and perhaps better way of governing versus but often, but disguised as a democracy, they have these elections that they right. pretend are real, versus sort of stale commitment to democracy in, in the countries that have taken it for granted, that basically think that once you have a democracy, it self-perpetuates, and it doesn't need to be fed and defended in each generation and, and protected. Mr. Chairman, if I can jump in there, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, Latin America and the Western Hemisphere is part of a broader global shift that we're seeing underway. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I believe it was uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, spoke to the British Parliament in 1983. He said that in the garden of democracy, uh, democracy is not a fragile flower, but it does require tending. And just as you laid out after the Cold War, uh, we assumed that elections meant democracy in Latin America, and, and we collectively forgot, in my view, to tend to the garden and deal with these very real issues we've been talking about to the point where uh, they have now become quite difficult. And the truth of the matter is they provide a permissive environment for those outside of the region who wish to meddle uh, the ability to do so. And that's precisely what we're seeing with new tools, new interests, uh, new opportunities to do that, to try to undermine democracy throughout the region. I think that's 
exactly right. You know, the uh, National Endowment for Democracy, I think, has done some very important work in the concept of sharp power, which is the use of non-military power to promote a certain vision uh, globally. Uh, both Russia and China and some other countries are using that very effectively uh, in terms of the pursuit and the promotion of their own interests. I've been an advocate for a long time not to try to say to other countries around the world, you have no business in Latin America, you can't come here, this is not for you. I mean, Latin America is part of the global environment, that's appropriate, uh, here we are. Um, you know, Latin America can trade with anybody that they want, uh, subject international law, et cetera, et cetera. But where I think the vacuum has been created is in the U.S. engagement with the region. I mean, this is a huge opportunity to contend for the region, which I think collectively and over a number of years we just have missed. Uh, and whether it's walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whether it's calling into question essentially all of our trading, our formal trading arrangements in the Western Hemisphere, starting with NAFTA but perhaps with others, uh, whether it's presenting a vision uh, that shows the United States to be less welcoming to our Latin American and Caribbean friends than we have traditionally been, this is something that resonates in the Western Hemisphere quite loudly. And so it plays into a narrative that a Russia or a China or somebody else can say, well, the United States is not in interested in you, they don't care about you, we do, and we want to trade with you, and we want to be your friends. And if I'm a Latin American and I'm seized with that choice, it's really no choice at all. I mean, the United States may be the preferred partner, but if China, for example, is the only partner, there is no choice. And that's, I think, what confronts the United States as we go to the summit of the Americas. We need to show the hemisphere that we are an engaged partner, not just based on our own interests, but we're partners for the region to help promote their interests as well. And if I can be a little bit flip, we want to help make the Americas great again. We want to promote a regional identity that the United States is very much a part of, hopefully in a leadership role in, but recognizing for precisely the reasons you've just laid out, Mr. Chairman, this is not an isolated hemisphere. This is not a region that is just over here and everybody else is conducting their affairs here. This is part of the global community, and I think it's time for the United States not just to recognize that, but to engage with the region on that basis. And I think we have a lot to add, I think we have a lot to contribute, but we have to want to be able to do that. If I can make a very quick point, if you'll indulge me on Senator Keynes, I think important question on Honduras. Um, the point that hasn't yet been raised in this hearing, particularly in the context of Central America, I think is a really important one. That's the role of the private sector. The private sector needs to be a voice for democracy. The private sector needs to stand up and loudly reject corruption. And whether it's in Honduras, whether it's in Guatemala, whether it's across the region, this is something that I think would make a meaningful contribution to uh, our collective efforts in the Western Hemisphere. And the final thing I would say about that so that Eric Olson doesn't have all the fun here, my mother was also a missionary in Honduras. Just, I mean, <laughs> on, on the, the question you said about the private sector, are you meaning U.S. companies? Because by law, that... That is a very good clarification. What I'm referring to specifically in this instance is the, uh, the local companies, right? The indigenous uh, companies or companies that are based in those countries. U.S. companies are subject to FCPA, all the requirements of U.S. law, uh, and those who don't abide by them, subject to U.S. law, et cetera, et cetera, that's appropriate. Mm. Um, but, you know, Eric Olson is talking about some of the resistance that whether it's a SIG or MOXIE are getting from their domestic constituencies. Um, that's not U.S. companies that are pushing back. The, 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 the private sector flourishes when the, when the 
uh, business climate is open and transparent and fair, the rules of game are known, and there is a rule of law that can be implemented uh, and that people know the rules. Yeah, the just game. because a side note I want to make is within the context of everything you just outlined in a culture and an environment, uh, economic culture and environment where corruption is at a minimum accepted and maybe even perhaps encouraged in some places, that's where we get a lot of complaints from American companies seeking to do work in the region is, and, and obviously they, they can't under our law participate in that, but then they often talk about Chinese firms that come in and basically flat out bribe their way into contracts that then, if they're big enough, give them significant leverage over those countries' geopolitical decisions at international forums. I mean, that is a, the huge issue that bears watching in the, in the years to come. I agree with that. Well, Mr. Chairman, I, I really do think you have brought up a subject in our own hemisphere, which is global, and uh, your point about autocratic countries where leaders are very much against democratic institutions being able to counter the arguments of democracy effectively with their own population. And Russia is the prime candidate here. It's interesting when you talk about the economics. Russia's economy is smaller than Italy's economy, smaller than South Korea's economy, and yet they dominate, or they try to dominate on the world stage in regards to a campaign against democratic countries. And they use an asymmetric arsenal, which includes propaganda, lying, cyber attacks, uh, in order to convince their population initially, but then the broader constituency, that their form of corrupt government protects human rights of their citizens better than democratic countries do. Uh, their system of government is a rule of law that is more predictable for their people than a democratic country's rule of law, or that their type of system's economy can perform better for the overall population than a democratic system uh, for economic opportunity. And that message is carrying. We, if we think that isn't working, it has worked. And they have brought down democratic institutions, and they use other messages, including a nationalist message and pride, et cetera, which uh, is now coming into our hemisphere. There's no question about it. But the common theme for success is corruption. That's what fuels it. Corruption fuels this regime. They can't exist without having the ability to to use the means of corruption. And I think our challenge, and I, th I think you pointed it out pretty clearly, is that we need to develop international standards that are recognized to fight corruption. Everybody's against corruption. So what does that mean? Transparency is very important. And we need to have standards, enforceable standards on transparency so that you can see what's going on. You need to have independent prosecutors. We know that. But they have to be financed. And they have to have the laws in place in order to be able to carry out their, their work. That's essential for You need anti-bribery statutes. You need public procurement so that you know exactly how the public monies are being spent, laws and reforms. You need to have... Uh, uh, you can't have impunity for public officials and the work that they do. They have to be held accountable if they're corrupt. You, you can't use the position to shield yourself from prosecution. 
They're all, I think, kind of standard things that must, must be included. And, and I, I just, you know, I've, I've worked uh, in our hemisphere. I've also worked in Europe quite a bit with the OSCE as a member of the Helsinki Commission, the ranking Senate uh, leader on the Helsinki Commission. And I, I mention that for two reasons. There's a lot of similarity to me in OSCE and OAS in, in their charters on basic commitments to democracy. Uh, there is several differences in the OSCE. They have a much more uh, intrusive budget, including missions that are much different than OAS. But they also have a parliamentary assembly, which gives parliamentary participation, which we don't have in the OAS. And uh, I appreciate the fact that this administration is reaching out to us in regards to the summit. And that's good. They are trying to get our input. But we don't have a formal mechanism for our participation in the OAS as we do in the OSCE, which is given stronger, I would say, credibility and expectations at their meetings, even though both are consensus organizations. Um, so I guess my, my last point is, how do we strengthen America's role in our hemisphere? Uh, what, what can we do so that we can literally see the future of our hemisphere with democratic states? America is firmly set on democracy. I'm not worried about that. But I do worry about what is happening in our own hemisphere and whether democracies will be weakened uh, because of all the reasons we've talked about. How can we strengthen America's leadership? How can we in Congress, which have a very limited role in the OAS, improve our influence in this hemisphere other than by appropriating dollars uh, on the foreign assistance side or by speaking out at hearings? What can, more can we do? And how can we strengthen the OAS as an institution so that its commitment to democracy is carried out in its policies in a more effective way? Well, I'll, I'll try to answer that in 60 seconds. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge challenge, no doubt. I wanted to add one small thing. Not only Russia and external actors take advantage of the lack of rule of law, but so do criminal organizations. That's a priority for this administration, fighting transnational criminal organization. I agree it's important, but it's not just about locking bad people up. It's also about building the capacity of the countries to hold people accountable because they grow, they take root, they take over governments uh, when there is no rule of law. And, and I think it's a huge priority. One, one, make it a bigger priority, as I said. It should be front and center in our relationship and our policy. Two, as Eric pointed out, and I think we, we agree, we have to have the, the leadership at the OAS. I understand we're, you know, there, there's a newly uh, named or appointed uh, permanent representative of the OAS. I think, you know, I think that's essential. We haven't had that person there for the last four or five years. Somebody who could be a bully pulpit. But I also think our entire uh, diplomatic corps needs to focus really strongly on these issues of rule of law, anti-corruption, accountability, and press these issues at every step of the way. I think for me, this is the future. This is what we have to focus on. There are short-term issues, obviously, uh, criminal organizations, gangs, and all, yes, 
But if we don't help rebuild the, the, the fabric of democracy that goes beyond elections, I think we're just going to continually deal with these issues, the strong men, the strong women uh, that come along and take advantage of institutional and governance weakness who corrupt the systems. That, to me, has got to be a priority, and I would just encourage this committee and the two of you as bipartisan leaders to make that more central in what we push in our relations at the OES, in the region, but also globally. I, too, uh, think it's a huge question. It's an important one. Probably would take more time than we have, unfortunately. But a couple points just to react, if I can, Mr. Cardin, to your <clears throat> Uh, very relevant uh, comments. First, you have identified a fundamental difficulty with the OAS, and that is to say it's an executives club, a club of national executives. Uh, and so where once the mission may have been different than it is now, uh, now uh, nations are allowed to use it, and they do use it, frankly, to protect themselves as opposed to promote any sort of vision so that uh, they, they block and tackle when there are efforts against Venezuela or other countries um, because those are the members of the OAS. It's the presidents themselves. Uh, and that's been something that's been identified as something that needs to be looked at again in the context of the Inter-American Democratic Charter uh, that was signed in, uh, in Peru in 2001. Um, this has to be a broader effort. You've identified uh, legislatures. I think that's entirely appropriate. How you bring that into an international body, I don't know, but I think it's a very important point. Um, just a couple of other quick things. Uh, number one is the power of example. The United States uh, does have a very potent power of example. We have to recognize that. Um, and that uh, people react to things that are said and done from the U.S. perspective uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and I think that is something that we need to add to our international toolkit uh, to understand that when it comes to democracy promotion, uh, people don't like to be lectured or tutored. Uh, they like to see what works in other countries and then maybe try to uh, follow best practices. And that's something that I think uh, Russia has done uh, very, very well in the context of trying to create in the public eye some sort of equivalency between the Russian system and democracy. Well, if, if democracy is so messy, what's, so big, what's the big deal, right? Uh, you know, we can't get justice here. We, you know, our economy's not doing well. People are corrupt. I might not even want to vote. You know, maybe the authoritarian system isn't so bad. At least I have a job. I know what the future holds, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's, it's simply a matter of, you know, my country is not going to have a, a, an international voice to say on Tibet or Taiwan, well, as an individual citizen in, in Latin America, what do I care about that, right? So, I mean, people are making individual choices. And I think Russia and China and the Tibet and Taiwan ex example have found a, a, a particularly attractive uh, vein to mine in the context of bringing uh, moral equivalency globally to the idea that authoritarian systems and democracy uh, are in some way uh, equal. I completely reject that view, but it's one that's been effectively promoted, and I think we have to start from an understanding, it goes to Chairman Rubio's comments, we have to start from the basis that we are in a competition. We are being, there is a battle going on for hearts and minds and ideas. We're not competing in that. But it doesn't mean it's not going on. And if we're not competing, we're losing. And so this is something I think we have to take very, very seriously. And we need to do a much better job 
um, not just understanding that, but then um, uh, working that into our overall approach, not just to the Western Hemisphere, frankly, but global democracy promotion. We should not be afraid to stand for democracy. We should not be afraid to not just uh, speak about it, but resource efforts on it. And my perception has been that has been uh, lacking in some way, again, over the past several years. The last thing I would say is a very specific point. Uh, we've talked about some ways to uh, improve the anti-corruption effort in the hemisphere. Some very good ideas that have already been mentioned. One that I don't think has been mentioned yet. Uh, we've talked about judicial independence. We haven't talked about judicial training. The idea of corruption is a really difficult issue to get one's arms around. What is corruption? And the whole idea of the definitional issues is important. But if you have a different legal system um, than we do in the United States and you have different training and you have judges who may not have the same uh, sensitivity to some of these issues, uh, it's probably unrealistic to think that even the best laid out case is going to come before a judge and be ruled on in any meaningful way uh, just in the routine course of events. So, so judicial training uh, is something that I think has been identified over the years as something that we could do a lot more of and could be very beneficial in the context of trying not just to sensitize people to corruption but actually to do something about it. Let, let me thank both of our witnesses. Uh, and let me point out, I agree with you completely that we need to counter what is happening uh, by Russia and other uh, countries that are against our way of governance. And uh, we did that. Congress authorized funds last year to do that, and our appropriators appropriated funds last year to do that. Uh, and we are now trying to increase that capacity and our own ability to counter the, the propaganda being sent out, primarily by Russia, but there are other countries. And uh, just as, as we close, a couple of points on this co competition. Um, you know, the world has always been influenced by whatever the most powerful country in the world's model is. And there's no doubt that the fact that the most powerful country in the world after World War II was a open economy, democratic nation had huge influence on the way many nations developed. Um, and now we're in this competition with this autocratic model that's making an argument. They point to our problems because we're an open society. So we broadcast the issues that we have and we argue about them in front of the whole world and in front of each other. And they don't. I mean, any bad news in China and any bad news in Russia is suppressed by state media that doesn't allow it to be reported. It's propaganda. And um, so they point to our model and say it's dysfunctional, it's broken. You know, look what we have. But they have another benefit, and that is they come at a very low price, at least in the front end. They don't care about your human rights record. We'll sell you weapons. <coughs> we'll sell you stuff. I mean, we don't care what you do. We don't care what kind of government you have. We don't care if you're corrupt, and we don't care how many innocent people you kill. These are not conditions. Ours comes with all sorts of strings. They'd rather have our stuff, and I'm for it. I'm not arguing that we should remove those things. I'm just telling you that's the presentation that is made. And so oftentimes you will see where nations in the region, for example, will make a military purchase of another country. They'd rather have our things, but they're going to buy theirs because it doesn't come with the strings attached, and they actually would sell it to them, or they'd rather have ours. I'm not, this is not an argument for lowering our standards. It's just one of the pitches that they use. But all being equal, they'd rather have our, our technology. They'd also just rather be closer to us. They are suspicious of Chinese intention. They are suspicious of Russian intentions. And they would prefer to have a relationship with us. There's cultural links, geographic links, historical links. But they feel neglected. And I've heard that now over and over again for the better part of a decade. No matter who is in charge, they feel that the United States gives lip service to the Western Hemisphere but largely neglects it. And, and, um, and, and therefore, uh, it kind of makes it vulnerable to this sort of activity. 
I, I am not critical. I'm, I am disappointed the president won't make it to Lima. I understand the Syria situation is very significant, and he's going to stay here and handle that. I'm not criticizing that decision. I do find it, however, symbolic of the broader challenge we face in the region for the better part of a decade, and that is every time we say we're going to focus on the Western Hemisphere, something emerges in the Middle East or somewhere else that distracts our attention away. And, and in this particular case, it's happened once again. And you know, Senator Cardin and I have a bill on war crimes accountability in Syria that we're hoping to get passed through the Senate. So it's a priority for us as well. It, but, but ultimately, the, the last point I'll make is the one good thing that has happened and is over the last year and a half, we have seen a regional cohesion among the large economies, the most you know, important regional powers on the issue of Venezuela. And I do think the administration, whatever criticism people may have about them on some other issues, has handled that one well. They've, they've been measured, they've been strategic, it's been slow and steady, they have targeted, they've taken their time in finding the right things to sanction, and they've done it in a way where it's not us telling the rest of the region what to do, but rather in partnership with them. And it is telling that these nations, Panama being the latest, have followed suit, as has the European Union and the Canadians. And I do think embedded in their approach towards Venezuela, is a way forward on a host of other issues in the region where we are truly partners and see in Brazil, in Colombia, in Argentina, in Chile, in Peru, in Mexico, force multipliers, nations whose, as their capacity grows, their ability and their regional leadership could be an asset and, and, and already is in the furtherance of these principles that we care about. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a region that we want it to be a source of good news, not bad news, a, a source of solutions, not problems. And it really begins by capacitating these countries who are following these examples and helping them to the extent we can, often simply by engaging with them. I mean, Argentina doesn't need a lot of foreign aid. They want to buy stuff. But, you know, Colombia is a good example. This is a nation we've invested in significantly. They have real problems. We don't have time to get into them today on the peace deal and the like. But this is also a country that's helping Honduras. Uh, by sending trainers there. So there's a lot here. Obviously, we could have dedicated a lot more time to this hearing, but I want to thank both of you for being a part of it and, and making it a priority to be here today. And, and this committee obviously is focused on this, but uh, I hope we can encourage more of our colleagues to get engaged in Western Hemisphere matters. Um, so again, the, the record for this hearing will remain open for 48 hours. And again, thank you both for being here. And with that, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.